And now, O muses, dwellers in the mansions of Olympus, tell me, for you are goddesses, and are in all places so that you see all things, while we know nothing but by report. Who were the chiefs and princes of the Danaeans? As for the common soldiers, they were so that I could not name every single one of them, though I had ten tongues, and though my voice failed not, and my heart were of bronze within me. Unless you, O Olympian muses, daughters of Aegis bearing Jove, were to recount them to me, nevertheless I will tell the captains of the ships and all the fleet together. Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. And today we're going to be talking about lists. Uh, So that opening was from the Samuel Butler translation of the Iliad. And it precedes a section of the Iliad that's often known as the Catalog of Ships. If you remember, Iliad has a lot of sections where it kind of lists things. This is like the most famous list in it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's this long list of the ships and the leaders of the Achaean Expeditionary force called the Danaeans in that passage. And uh, so to get a, a sense of the many items of the list that follows, I think maybe we should we should read a couple more of them. They've got a lot of tricky Greek names, but we'll do our best with them. I'll take the first one here. Okay. Okay. Ascalaphus and Ialmanus, sons of Mars, led by people that dwelt in Aspledon and Orchomenus, the realm of Minyas. Astyache, a noble maiden, bore them in the house of Actor, son of Asius, for she had gone with Mars secretly into an upper chamber, and he had lain with her. With these there came thirty ships. It sounds a bit gossipy, doesn't it? It's yeah, it does. Like, I thought you were just naming ships, and now you're, you're having to tell me who's sleeping with who as well? Well, they're naming, like, the captains and the numbers of people and where they came from, but they also got to slip in a little bit of, like, a <laughs> divine rumor, yeah. All right. Uh, it continues. The fierce Abantes held Evia with its cities. Calchas, Eritia. Histia, rich in vines, Corinthus upon the sea, and the rock-perched town of Beum. With them were also the men of Charistus and Styra. Elephenor, of the race of Mars, was in command of these. He was son of Chalcodon, and chief over all the Abantes. With him they came, fleet of foot, and wearing their long hair behind, brave warriors who would ever strive to tear open the corsets of their foes with their long ashen spears. Of these there came fifty ships. And they that held the strong city of Athens, the people of great Erechtheus, who was born of the soil itself, but Jove's daughter, Minerva, fostered them and established him at Athens in her own rich sanctuary. There, year by year, the Athenian youths worship him with sacrifices of bulls and rams. These were commanded by Menestheus, son of Petius. No man living could equal him in the marshalling of chariots and foot soldiers. Nestor could alone rival him, for he was older. With him, there came 50 ships. But there are a lot of these in the poem. Uh, This passage in the Iliad is interesting because there's a lot of debate about its origin and authorship. Like, is it part of the original poem? Is it a later insertion? Is it maybe a gradual accretion as audiences of the epic song in every locale wanted to hear their own local tribe and legendary hero incorporated into the story? But 
it's also something that calls attention to itself simply because it is a list. It's a list of so it's a list, an accounting of things, a list of numbers of ships, of their commanders, of the numbers of soldiers they brought, and it's right in the middle of a poem. Uh, and we might not often think of like a list of forces as having a very like literary or poetic quality. But I guess there, there are also scholars who would disagree with that. For example, Umberto Eco, the medievalist and semiotician and author, including of The Name of the Rose, which uh, I just read for the first time this year and I loved. Oh, it's a marvelous book. Yeah, but Eco loved lists. He was uh, pretty much obsessed with lists. And he clearly considered them not like a deviation from poetic form, but a really valuable form of art and object of study. So much so that in 2009, when uh, Echo was invited to curate an exhibition at the Louvre, the subject of the exhibition he put together was the list. I wish I could have seen that, an Umberto Echo curated exhibit on lists. <laughs> uh, but he was interviewed that year by Der Spiegel and ended up talking a lot about his fascination with the power of lists in the interview. One of the central examples he talks about is the catalog of ships from the Iliad. Uh, so Echo says in the interview, quote, Take Homer, for example. In the Iliad, he tries to convey an impression of the size of the Greek army. At first, he uses similes, and he quotes, As when some great forest fire is raging upon a mountaintop, and its light is seen afar, even so, as they marched, the gleam of their armor flashed up onto the firmament of heaven. Uh, but Echo continues, but he isn't satisfied. He can't find the right metaphor, and so he begs the muses to help him. Then he hits on the idea of naming many, many generals and their ships. And then later in the interview, he says, quote, Homer's work hits again and again on the topos of the inexpressible. People will always do that. We have always been fascinated by infinite space, by endless stars, and by galaxies upon galaxies. How does a person feel when looking at the sky? He thinks that he doesn't have enough tongues to describe what he sees. Nevertheless, people have never stopped describing the sky, simply listing what they see. Lovers are in, a, in the same position. They experience a deficiency of language, a lack of words to express their feelings. But do lovers ever stop trying to do so? They create lists. Your eyes are so beautiful, and so is your mouth and your collarbone. One could go into great detail. And I think there's something interesting in what Echo says there. What he says makes me think of other poems like the Song of Solomon and the Hebrew Bible and uh, like, you know, uh, uh, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, How Do I Love Thee? Let Me Count the Ways. Oh, yes. I love you in the morning and in the afternoon. I love you in the evening underneath the moon. Yeah, oh, the yeah. Moon. I will not eat it <laughs> with a goat and I will not eat it. <laughs> <laughs> on a boat, etc. Well, even in Sam I Am and the Green Eggs and Ham, I think there, there's something going on there with the use of a list to try to convey what cannot be expressed in, in simple language. Uh, mm -hmm. The idea that like one's disgust is without bounds, you know, you have infinite disgust for the idea of green eggs and ham. And so all you can do is start listing all the ways you would not eat it. Right. But then ultimately, like each one is is... Is, is, is each argument against trying the green eggs and ham is just as ridiculous as the last because the whole argument is, well, try it, give it a try, and eventually he does. But yeah, there's a, it's, it's, there's a lot of listing in that particular uh, book. There's a lot of listing, I guess, in kind of lyrical um, 
fiction, lyrical, children's books especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, another example that came up that we'll probably bring up again is the uh, is um, the night before Christmas and the naming of the reindeer. Like yeah. all the reindeer must be named and listed as part of this. There's, there's almost kind of a, a magical spell quality to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, the, the recitation of figures, of qualities. Uh, another one I think of uh, a great list in, in poetic form that sort of conjures a magical environment of inexpressible quality is The Goblin Market by Christina Rossetti. Yeah, that's a fun one. We actually helped record a reading of The Goblin Market for, um, I believe it was then Foodstuff, now known as uh, Savor, Mm -hmm. a podcast hosted by uh, Lauren Vogelbaum and Annie Reese. We'll have to include a a link to that on the landing page for this episode. That was a really fun episode, but it... it what what is, what is what happens in that poem? So the basic plot of the poem is it's about some uh, a pair of sisters who are corrupted by these goblins who are selling sort of supernatural fruits mm-hmm. at a market. Uh, but there there are these long sections where the goblins are just listing all of the fruits, and it goes on and on and on, more and more fruits, and it eventually has this cumulative quality where it suggests that the fruits are infinite. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, uh, there are a lot. You've encountered this a lot in, uh, in uh, you know, rich descriptions of, of places and settings, um, where where the author will just just dive in uh, head first and just describing one thing after the other, just really really list the sights and sounds of a particular uh, scene. Yeah, exactly. And so it's interesting that there's uh, the use of lists in in a literary sense. I feel like has completely opposite usages in which it works both ways. One way is an author can use a list to sort of suggest infinity and inexpressibility, mm-hmm. like qualities that are beyond measure and beyond counting can be suggested by listing. But at the same time, you can use a list to start to make understandable and make manageable something that otherwise is is completely chaotic and doesn't make sense to you. Like uh, another quote of Umberto Eco's in that interview is he says, quote, the list is the origin of culture. It's part of the history of art and literature. What does culture want to make infinity comprehensible? It wants to create order, not always, but often. And how as a human being does one face infinity? How does one attempt to grasp the incomprehensible? Through lists, through catalogs, through collections in museums, and through encyclopedias and dictionaries. Well, certainly if you you begin to list something and it gives you the ability to then break up that list Mm -hmm. into uh, consumable parts. Like, for instance, the list of all organisms on the planet is an ongoing list that has not yet been finished. Uh, We continually add new species to it. And yet by subdividing that list, we have a really good idea uh, of of what the, the basic shape of life on planet Earth consists of. Yeah. Yeah, you can construct an evolutionary tree by making lists of organisms and then listing their characteristics and then comparing your lists. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think of making a list as often similar to um, – there's a process at the beginning of cleaning a messy room – you know, where mm-hmm. at first a, a mess is sort of a singular quality. It's just like a thing that you are faced with and it, it has this unified evil magic and aura that cannot be penetrated. And you, the best way to deal with it is start just sort of like making a catalog of, okay, what's actually here? Right. And sometimes you'll make piles of things and stuff. Essentially, you're sort of physically making a list out of individual elements from what was originally just a mess. 
Oh, absolutely. With a, with a proper list, um, a, a task that would otherwise seem insurmountable can seem beatable, be it something that does have a, a definite end to it, say, like a, like a long uh, legal process, like, say, yeah. an adoption process. Yeah. That was my experience. It was a very, very long process to reach the endpoint. But, if, you know, you divided it up. And indeed, the first step is just like, well, let's look at the list. Yeah. Likewise, though, we also take this same thing and we apply it to such situations as, say, human mortality. Mm-hmm. And if you take just the, the bucket list. Yeah. Well, not just that, but say Aubrey de Grey's approach oh, to, you, uh, to actual mortality. Yeah. Like, you know, how can we beat death? Well, we can, well, let's start by just dividing it up into winnable uh, avenues, like winnable battles. Yeah. And even though, so Aubrey de Grey, if you're not familiar, he's like a, a gerontologist mm-hmm. and a general a smart guy, I think. But he, he's tried to address the problem of aging and said, hey, let's not treat this as an inevitability. Maybe we can scientifically beat aging and stop, you know, death from old age from happening. Um, and the way he approached it, I think, though a lot of people disagree with his confidence in his, uh, you know, prediction that we can beat the problem, the way he approached it is let's break death and aging down into a list of all of the things that go wrong. And that's a a brilliant way of looking at it. Even if he's wrong about what we can do, just seeing the like actual number of problems in aging uh, enumerated and named, it gives you suddenly this feeling of power over the problem that you didn't have before. Yeah, and suddenly you start thinking, well, maybe this wizardy-looking guy does have a point. Maybe we can beat death. Maybe he, death uh, isn't isn't that big of a deal. He does have a magnificent beard. He's he like he's like a Rasputin of life. <laughs> And so I, I think maybe this should lead us to make a, a distinction that's an important distinction when it comes to lists. Uh, I, I was thinking about like finite versus infinite games. There's also a big difference in in the way lists play roles in our lives depending on whether they're finite or infinite lists. Okay. Like uh, we make finite lists of things I think in order to better understand something, say like a list of organs in the human body. Mm-hmm. And then meanwhile you make an infinite list in order to try to begin to address an infinite problem. Like You know, how do you express an unbounded feeling of love for somebody? You start listing the ways. Or how do you live your life? Well, one way to do that is to try to make a to-do list. Ideally, a to-do list is not something where you're like, okay, I'm done with all my tasks and I can just stop living now. It's just something that you're trying to prioritize the whole future you have in front of you. Oh, I have to admit that the the idea of of infinite lists here is is maybe a little – confusing to me because I'm thinking like, is there really an infinite number of reasons that one, say, loves their spouse? I mean, there's there's probably a finite <laughs> list of things. I mean, the, the human experience is only so varied, right? Well, I mean, you could keep breaking down reasons into smaller and smaller sub-reasons. I, I guess so. Yeah, that's right. You could sort of, uh, what is it, you know, foot race with Achilles. Yeah. Uh, uh, pull, you could pull that number off. I mean, likewise, you could say the stars in the sky. Right. Uh, to a certain extent, the human experience, there's sort of a small I infinity there. Mm-hmm. Though, of course, there is, a, uh, there, is, there is a definite finite number out there. Right. So. I mean, in the same way, you could say there is no such thing as an infinite game because eventually we'll have the heat death of the universe and nothing can go on forever. But I right. mean, things that, are, things that are for your purposes infinite. Like yeah. you, you never – a to-do list is something you might cross all of the items off of, but that doesn't mean you've run out of things to do. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. 
But then on on the other side of lists, uh, one of the things that I often think about is how how funny it often is to me, just how funny listicles are to me. I mean, we've both worked in web publishing. And, uh, oh, man, there is a period. I mean, I I guess listicles are actually still popular. Like, they do well on YouTube and and on, uh, you know, on social media and all that. But but back in the day, I remember especially, like, for Google search and, like, homepage optimization, trying to make – trying to make the HowStuffWorks homepage clicky. It was was listicles all the way down. Oh, yes, yes. And some of them were were quite good. I remember – uh, even when we were putting out a bunch of, of towing articles at the time, <laughs> there was one top 10 that they spun out of that uh, effort, uh, top 10 heaviest things moved by man, which is a fun little article. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, I can enjoy a good listicle. I know, Robert, I think uh, you've in the past expressed your love for for a good cracked listicle, right? Yeah, I have enjoyed some uh, some of those cracked listicles in the past. I also really like uh, some of the – um, the clickhole listicles. Like, oh, those are amazing. Like I think it's like five or ten signs that your therapist is about to go to Six Flags after your session. <laughs> you know, stuff like that I'm, I'm always on board for. Well, that's what clickhole is great for is like just you know, highlighting the bare absurdity that lies underneath uh, internet content strategies. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I remember back in the day, like around 2010 – some of the listicles going up on Discovery and TLC were so funny to me. It was like it would be things, you know, like ten backyard games your golden retriever will love. Yeah, I think so. So there are a few different appealing aspects of the top ten, right? I mean, a, a, a big one is that it's easily absorbed. Mm-hmm. The idea is that I'm I'm, not, I'm in a hurry. Maybe I don't even really want to read this article, but it's a top ten. So at the very least. I could scan the 10 items, and I kind of instantly want to know what made the list and what didn't. I think that's very – yeah, I think that's exactly right. Scanability is a big part of it. Right, especially with things that are – so there are different types of top 10s, obviously, Mm -hmm. or or 10 or list-based things. Sometimes they're a process. For instance, the the so many WikiHow articles that are a list of 10 steps to do something, including – I found one the other day for faking your own death. (laughs) So it's everything from fixing a toilet to, to faking your own death. My, my favorite eHow article of all time that I ever found, I think I checked recently and it's not still up, but it was how to pray for money. <laughs> um, yeah, so, th- so there's that area. And then there's the ranking of things, like the 10 best superhero m- movies. Um, right. Or And so you want to click on that because you, you just want to – maybe you're just a, you're a curmudgeon and you just want to notice what they didn't include mm-hmm. and and shame them for what they did include. Well, the the top 10 ranking thing is, I think, popular for multiple reasons. Number one, I mean, humans, even though we don't like to admit this, we clearly look to other people to form our own tastes, right? right? You know, we, we start to think, I, I should have my own ideas of what's the top 10 movies in X category. And then, like, looking at other people's ideas gives you something to react to, either to base yours on theirs or to react against it or whatever. But it's also popular, I think, for the same reason that, like, you're doing it wrong articles are popular. Mm-hmm. It feels like an aggressive, opinionated state that is highly tempting to argue with. Right. Yeah, and, and certainly sharing like five five films that shaped you or whatever, you know, whatever the, the current version of it that's going around on social media is a great statement of self, you know. It's, uh, it's, it's a way of sort of summing up your character yeah. uh, in a selection of films or books or albums or what have you. Yes, at the same time that it's easy to share by – it's easy for audience members to share because, you know, it's fun to say I disagree. How could they leave off you forgot X? Mm-hmm. Yeah, 
We we get I mean we even we don't do top ten episodes, but one of the most common types of emails we get is I can't believe you forgot to mention X when yeah. we're like talking about a you know giving a selection of examples of something whenever we do a list. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and sometimes we do really forget to mention things, or we you know we have them in the notes and we don't mention them. Other times we just don't know about them. Right? Yeah. Uh, that's the, the the other problem about trying to make any kind of inclu- fully inclusive list. Yeah, so I think for the rest of this episode, we, we should try to think about what what is the role of the list in human culture. And for a couple of things we're going to focus on, I think one should be the to-do list and the psychological power of the to-do list. The other one would be the idea of a list as a type of literature or media. Why is it so popular? Why Why does it work? Yeah, I think it's interesting to think of lists even just p- purely in our entertainment, mm-hmm. um, and and even outside of the necessity, their necessity in things like um, crafting, mixology, cooking, mm-hmm. building a Lego kit. I mean, those are the things where you you need a series of steps to follow in order to get it right. Oh man, what is the? Is there like a visual? Uh, version of ASMR. I don't know what it, when you just get like goosebumps, like seeing an image of a toy from your childhood. For me, it would be Lego instructions. Oh, Lego instructions. And they've only gotten better, Joe. That's yeah. the thing. Uh, when when I read le- current Lego kit instructions versus uh, older Lego instructions, they're just they're, they're so clear and precise. Mm. I can follow them so easily. Um, they should do instructions for everything. You're just mocking me. Like I should leave the studio and go buy some Legos to you play should. with right now. You should go buy yourself a Hogwarts and, and have at it. That one, that one has a lot of steps to it. I, I keep saying I think one of the best things about having kids has got to be that you get to play with Legos again. Yeah, and then step on Legos again. Oh. Uh, <laughs> the, the Harry Potter sorting hat, by the way, especially painful to step on. That's probably the most painful Lego I've ever stepped on. Anyway, uh, outside of children's playthings, you also find a lot of lists in, um, you know, in, 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 say, video games for all oh, yeah. ages. Well, a lot of g- video games are highly acquisitive in nature. You know, you yeah. accumulate stuff in them. Oh, yeah. Like the main example um, I, I have right now is uh, Fallout 76 because mm-hmm. that's, a, that's a game I'm currently playing. And uh, I stopped, though, to, to think the other day as, as we were talking about doing this episode – that there's man, man, there sure are a lot of lists in this game mm-hmm. because you open your inventory and what is it? A series of lists. Uh, like a, there's a great, yeah. there's a big list, and then you can break down your list into sub lists of the various weapons, armors, bits of scrap junk, notes, uh, hollow tapes, etc. Uh, so it's just one big list. And then when you when uh, when it comes to the things you're trying to do in the game, there are a whole there's a whole other like wide array of to do lists. You got your like your main quest items, your side quests, your daily quests. Uh, it, it's just a game full of lists. The story is a list of Mission objectives yeah. in a way. Well, I mean, I haven't played 76. I assume it's like the other Fallout games. Oh, yeah, yeah. Basically the, the, the same concept. Yeah, and it, it, it's just a list of things you have to you have to get done, uh-huh. uh, which is kind of weird that we, we sometimes retreat from our real life of to-do lists, and then we go into a fantasy world where we have, a, a, you know, another list that we have to do. And it's not necessarily this just simple equation of, well, your 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 real life list is harder to do. And you have, a, it's, it's, you know, the video game is a, a world in which uh, everything is simplified. No, sometimes the, the to-do list is impossible in the video game world as well. Yeah. Uh, for, for varying reasons. But but yet we, we go to it and we expect it to be there. Now, here, here's another question, though. Aside from, like, internet content type listicles, I mean, like, lists within 
broader works of uh, of fiction or or something what what is it that makes a list inherently entertaining some lists are boring yeah. and other lists are really engrossing i remember uh, looking at lists of things in my like Star Wars Illustrated Encyclopedia mm-hmm. when I was a little kid, and I was like, "This is a good list." Oh yeah, when it when it comes to the the lore and the glossary mm-hmm. of any kind of created world, I mean, I'm I'm instantly on board for any of that. Like things like uh, you know the appendix to the Lord of the Rings or Dune. Oh, the um, Dune glossary is almost as good as the novel itself. Oh, abso- absolutely, the Dune Encyclopedia, even though it's not technically canon, was one of my favorites. Uh, uh, when I was younger, um, yeah, pretty much any book that I really get into, the Second Apocalypse Saga or uh, uh, the Game of Thrones books, you know, like give me a give me an alphabetized list of all the names, places, and things in a given universe, and I'll just I'll I'll read through it. I'm currently reading the uh, the Harry Potter monster book uh, to to my son. Oh, or it's an alphabetical listing of various uh, magical beasts from the uh, the setting. Oh, does he does he get down with lists too? Um, I, well, I don't know if he's as down with lists as I am, but he's really into Harry Potter, so, uh-huh. so that works. But, uh, but yeah, outside of that, though, like, like for instance, Lord of the Rings, okay? Like, it's kind of built around a whole list, isn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. you, you kick off the whole novel with this uh, list of rings and who has them, and it's vital to the, uh, you know, the basic setup of the entire saga. Even better that it's a rhymed list, though. Yeah, yeah, the whole three rings for elven kings under the sky, seven for dwarf lords in their halls of stone. It's usually read with some degree of drama, but I often wonder, like, what if it, what if it was just this was just written on a like a cocktail napkin, and Sauron just had it on hand. He's like, all right, what am I making today? Okay, I got to make three rings for elven kings under the sky, <laughs> seven for, for dwarf lords in their halls of stone. Nine, geez, nine for mortal men doomed to die. That's a lot. I don't know why I, I said nine. Okay, well, the one for me. Mm -hmm. On my dark throne, right, here in Mordor, et cetera. But then, of course, because he's the Lord of Mordor, the the to-do list just ends up gloating, right, in in the darkness (laughs) bind them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I've never thought about it that way. I like that. It's it's Sauron's to-do list from before the rings were made. So I I think that should steer us into talking about the power and nature of to-do lists. But first we should take a break. And when we come back, we'll we'll discuss some of the psychology of to-do lists. All right, we're back. Robert, do you find to-do lists useful? Yeah, to a certain extent. Yeah. I mean, so sometimes it's a matter of just having a reminder, right? Like on my hand, I have the the remnants of a to-do list for today that include picking up two items from from various stores. Uh-huh. Uh, otherwise, I might forget them if I didn't have them written on my hand. And likewise, if I have more than two items to pick up at a given store, I need a list of those. Otherwise, I'll forget them. But um, uh, yeah, I mean, a list are, a lists are necessary for tackling various larger projects, and especially if you're approaching something from a project management standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, something like, say, launching a podcast. That's the kind of checklist we see a lot around here when there's a new podcast that rolls out. When we roll that invention, for, exist- for, for instance, yeah. there was a standardized list of things that needed to be done, uh, that needed to be figured out. Uh, uh, that needed to be started or assigned to somebody else, mm-hmm. and you you would not have a finished product until you'd finished that list. So, I mean, I, I have to like to-do lists because they are one way that things get done. Well, you're exactly right. I think that there is clearly a difference between good lists and bad lists when you're trying to come up with a to-do list. And 
it's sort of like you know it once you're in it. Like you're like, this isn't a good list. It's not working for me. But I was trying to think what are the actual characteristics that make a to-do list helpful rather than something that just hangs over you like a wraith that's making you feel anxious and depressed. Well, they need to be things that you can easily check off. I mean, it seems like a no-brainer, but they need to be things that are achievable yeah. in the short term. So, like, you can't have a checklist that says, like, Sauron's checklist wasn't enslave Middle Earth and check it off. No, he started small, building various magical rings to work up to this. In fact, maybe he should have started even smaller. Uh, he should maybe he should have been thinking about the individual materials he needed for the ring and like <laughs> making the mold and all that. Uh, so we'll get into this in a minute. I, I was wondering, like, uh, obviously there's a million self-help books and productivity seminars and all that about uh, about like how to have better to-do lists and and be more productive. But I was wondering, you know, is there anything that draws on actual psychology research? Mm-hmm. Um, one thing I came across was a chapter about to-do lists in a 2012 book about willpower by uh, one of the authors was the psychologist Roy Baumeister. Uh, so it was by Baumeister and Tierney. And I thought some of their points were were kind of interesting. Uh, some of them were kind of obvious. Others, I was interested in the reasoning behind them. So one of the things that they point out in this book is that uh, studies show that often when we get asked to like list out our goals and priorities, a lot of our goals are in conflict with one another. And this this is something that – I don't know, should be kind of obvious to us, but it's clear that we just don't really think about it this way until we, like, list things out and realize things are in conflict. A common example is, like, when you have two different goals that are both competing for time you don't have. Mm -hmm. So, like, you're already busy and you're asked to make a list of your goals and your goals include things like, you know, spend more time on X personal project and also spend more time with family. And so, like, those goals are obviously in competition with each other for an already scarce resource. Or things can be like that with money. You know, they're Mm -hmm. competing for a limited pool of finite resources that you have. (laughs) You know, I can't help but be reminded of a a Clicole headline I saw recently uh, titled, The Only 31 Things Standing Between You and Your Dreams. (laughs) (laughs) I'm scrolling through it now. Uh, (laughs) It's got entries like, Your Dog, (laughs) Crippling Doubt, Your Past. (laughs) (laughs) See, that's that's a wonderful, terrible list because Uh you're including some things that are reasonably specific, but just also huge and vague and totally not actionable. Yeah. Uh, So... (laughs) So in this book, a great example of uh, of like when, you know, how our goals can come into conflict with each other. So the authors talk about, you know, Benjamin Franklin was obsessed with maximizing his life. He was a maximizer, mm-hmm. sort of a life hacker type dude. Yep. And he tried to do this by making to-do lists about everything, like huge to-do lists for daily virtues to fulfill. So like one – every day you'd have to fulfill like uh, – like uh, frugality and industry. But he found, of course, these things came into conflict because he's trying to be frugal, so he ends up having to spend a lot of time like doing things for himself instead of paying somebody else to do them. Mm -hmm. But then that prevents him from doing work, so he finds he's less industrious. So, Mm -hmm. you know, these things are large and general, and the goals are actually fighting each other. And so the authors point out that like psychology and neuroscience research does not always show that thinking about lists of goals is helpful. It's only helpful in some cases given certain kinds of lists and goals. Like uh, the psychologists Robert Emmons and Laura King, 
demonstrated in a series of studies that, uh, that quote, the result of conflicting goals is unhappiness instead of action. Uh, again, that might seem kind of obvious, but how many obvious things do we get stuck in a rut over all the time? Uh, so first of all, they found when, pe when people make a list of goals and, and think about them, if the goals are in conflict, first of all, people end up worrying a lot. They mm -hmm. end up uh, – the, the psychological term for this is rumination. And that's a word that just means like repetitive negative thought patterns, it's worrying cycles. Right. Uh, the second thing is they actually get less done when they think about these lists of goals. People ruminate – not only ruminate, but they ruminate instead of acting to get things done. Uh, and productivity on reaching goals decreases. And then finally, physical and mental health suffers. People report more negative emotions, more depression and anxiety, and more physical sickness. So thinking about lists of your goals, listing out the things you want itself is not enough to make you become happier, more productive, and all that. It really matters what those goals are and how they're formulated. And when they're in the wrong format, it could leave you worse off than before. That reminds me of a, a bit of wisdom that I've, I've seen uh, numerous times about uh, uh, New Year's resolutions. Yeah. You know, about how you, you set too lofty a New Year's resolution and you're just, you're, you're kicking your own self in the pants. Right. Like there's, that's not going to do you any good. You've just, you've just gone ahead and, and made this formalized version of your own uh, impending failure. Uh, when really you should you should scale it back more and make something that's again more actionable and more achievable and fits in with the uh, the other commitments in your life. You know, I wonder if sometimes we set really ambitious goals for New Year's resolutions because subconsciously we want to make sure that we will have an excuse to quit trying sooner. <laughs> I tell you one I always hate is I forget what it's called, but it's like a challenge to write an entire novel manuscript during the month of November. Yeah, Nano Nano Remo. Yeah, which is the what's the I can scarcely think of a worse month to try and commit to a daily writing project than November. You're getting right into the holidays. There's Thanksgiving. You're trying to to, to get a lot of work done. Like yeah. They should do it more like I'm thinking. Um, it's I like don't know, a, April, maybe. It's uh, a challenge to go swimming outdoors uh, every day of January or yeah. something. <laughs> I mean, everyone's mileage is going to vary, but that, that is always my my uh, uh, realization. Is like I say, oh, that, that thing's going on, and they're like, oh, it's no, it's November. This is this is a complete waste of, of my time. I'm just remembering what our November last year was like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh. So, somehow I didn't have time to fit in. Uh, uh, writing a novel while we were also uh, launching an extra podcast. <laughs> right. Uh, so, but anyway, so if, if sometimes goals are in conflict, right, sometimes this, this just happens and thinking about those goals can paralyze you, make you unhappy. How do you resolve this? I mean, you would think one way would be to reformulate your list of goals in order to, to remove conflicts. So one way to do this is think about the time horizon of your top goals. I think it's probably easier for things on your list to remain in conflict when they're more general and when they're more long term. Time, thinking about time helps you think about like, okay, what do I really care about this month? What do I really care about this week? Right. For instance, come up with an idea for a novel in November. Yeah. There you go. And, and that time horizon thing really does matter in multiple ways. Like some studies show that short-term goals are more effective at, at, at uh, causing action and improvement than long-term goals can sometimes be better than no goals at all. One 
example cited is uh, this research conducted by the psychologist Albert Bandura and Dave Schunk on kids from 7 to 10 who are taking this self-directed math course. So the kids are trying to learn how to do certain kinds of math problems, and they're separated into four groups. One group gets this set of short-term goals. Their goal is to do six pages of math problems in every one of seven sessions. And then a second group has a, sec- has a different goal. It's to complete 42 pages of math problems at the end of seven sessions. So these two goals, if both completed, should give you the same level of progress. And then there was a third group that didn't have any particular goals and a fourth group that didn't do math exercises. And the results were the kids in the short-term group did a lot better. They completed more problems. They were better at solving problems at the end of the course. Kids in the long-term group who were just like, okay, get it all done at the end of the course did no better than kids who had no goals at all. Hmm. And if you think back to your own childhood or maybe your own adulthood, you can you can probably see that that really rings true, at least it does to me. Like if I didn't have work broken into smaller chunks, I would never get it done. Now, on the other hand, at the same time, there's research that's found that particularly in older students around high school age, thinking about long-term goals is associated with better outcomes like academic performance overall. And a common explanation here that, that might be going on is that once you're older, it's easier for you to see a connection between your long-term goals and your short-term work. Like short-term tasks are sort of, uh, they're given a motivation boost when you think about what your long-term goals are. So you could maybe think about these two results sort of in conflict, but I don't think they're necessarily in conflict because a possible takeaway is it's good to keep long-term goals in mind to help motivate you as long as they're not conflicting. But you also, in order to get stuff done, you need to, to chunk things down. You've got to put your – you got to formulate your to-do list items in small, discrete chunks of work with clear goals. And that's what we were talking about with Sauron earlier. You know, if it's just uh, conquer all of the lands, that that's not going to work as well. You've got to separate it, break it into smaller tasks. Right. But likewise, having, having that overall goal of uh, sub Subjugating Middle Earth, yeah, uh, probably helped him put even more effort into making that one ring really <laughs> dope. You know, I think so. Yeah, so it's like visualize the end, but focus on what you have to do right now, the mm-hmm. very next thing. Uh, another important insight that they cite is just uh, it's important to be flexible. Like if you try to over rigidly plan out to do lists of things, uh, that can that can actually get you bogged down. And one example they cite is research that found that people who made monthly plans for goal attainment uh, did better than people who made rigid daily plans for goal attainment. Just because day to day things come up. I yeah. Mean, you get you get sidetracked. You need to have a plan that has has some some wiggle in it if something comes up today and you can't do your thing today. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess yeah, I can definitely see that with bigger projects. I, I'm if I'm trying to think on a day to day basis, something's going to wreck that plan. Mm-hmm. But if I'm thinking more weekly and monthly, uh, like by the end of this month, I will have reached this point more or less. Then that's that's that tends to work. Yeah, totally. Though I would say eat like each day within a monthly goal setting thing, it's good to like plan out more minute parts of the day oh, yeah, as you go. Yeah. You shouldn't wait till the 28th. Right. <laughs> the, kick it into overdrive. Right. Then you get into like uh, do your 42 pages by the end kind of thing. Yeah. You just never do it. Okay. The next big thing that the, these authors bring up about to-do lists 
is going back to something we've talked about on the podcast before, which is the Zygarnik effect. Oh, yes. We've discussed this. Uh, we've discussed it in our Tetris episode, and uh, there was another one, too. I'm trying to remember. Uh, the the incomplete, unfinished one? Yes, we... yes, about various uh, bits of artwork, et cetera, uh, literature uh, in, in which there is some incomplete aspect to the thing. Right. Well, it certainly applies to that because the Zygarnik effect is the brain's tendency to be brought back to incomplete tasks and to remember them better than complete tasks. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was a concept originally expressed and studied in the 1920s, I think in 1927, by a Russian psychologist by the name of Blumo Volfovna Zygarnik, who lived 1900 to 1988. And supposedly this came about after she and a colleague were discussing watching waiters in a restaurant and how the waiters could remember all of the details of the order at one of their tables until the check was cleared. And then once the check at that table was cleared, it, it was like their brains were just wiped. They forgot everything. Huh. The task is complete and therefore yeah. the, uh, the information, uh, the various road signs to completion are no longer necessary. Yeah, exactly. So uh, to, to sum it up, uh, in a 2008 social psychology textbook by uh, Roy Baumeister and Brad Bushman, uh, the authors write, quote, The Zygarnik effect is a tendency to experience automatic intrusive thoughts about a goal that one has pursued, but the pursuit of which has been interrupted. That is, if you start working toward a goal and fail to get there, thoughts about the goal will keep popping into your mind while you're doing other things, as if to remind you to get back on track to finish reaching that goal. So, uh, given this, like, the Zygarnik effect is often cited as an explanation of what we talked about earlier, rumination, you know, unproductive patterns of recurring negative thoughts. Uh, The Zygarnik effect can kind of like just pull you out of whatever you're doing right now and make you start thinking about that thing you're worrying about, the the goal you haven't attained, the task you haven't finished. But it's also used to describe more mundane stuff like earworms and music. Hmm. Uh, Like if you hear part of a song play, your brain may try to keep completing the task of the song until you actually are able to listen to the whole thing. And as personal anecdotal evidence of this, you ever notice how, at least if you're like me, you're more likely to get a song stuck in your head if you hear it in an unfocused way, like playing in a grocery store or on the radio in a car, as opposed to a song that you like sit down and listen to? Yeah, yeah, for sure. It certainly, it makes for a more, more of a chance encounter. Yeah. Um, and not a deliberate encounter, but yeah, those will be the times where uh, I I leave the the grocery store and then there's this song stuck in my head. I feel like literally at least seventy five percent of the time that somebody says to me, "Why are you singing that song?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> I I don't even realize I was singing it, and then what I realize is it was playing in a store. <laughs> but that seems perfect because, like in a store, you walk in and out, you're not really paying attention to the music. You hear a bit of it, and it just gets lodged in there, and then your brain's like trying to play it back and 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 complete it. Um, But we should note that it appears that the Zygarnik effect has a sort of mixed replication history, like some studies replicate the effect, others fail to. So if we assume that it is real and based on experience, I think it does at least somewhat seem to be real. There may be conditional qualities to it that we don't fully understand yet. Uh, And one complication to the effect, for instance, seems to be related to creating to-do lists. So I I just want to mention one study by Roy Baumeister and E.J. Massachusetts. 
Acampo called Consider It Done, Plan Making Can Eliminate the Cognitive Effects of Unfulfilled Goals. And this was in the Journal of Personality and Social Psychology in 2011. So this uh, paper, they, they recount a number of studies that the authors did to test the persistence and intrusiveness of thoughts about an upcoming finished task like a, an exam in school. And uh, a few examples of how to test things would be like testing how often people became distracted while trying to read something after being made to think about that upcoming task or testing how primed this, the subjects were to complete a partial word puzzle with a task-related solution word. So like if you're given like EX blank, do you complete that as exam or as something else? Hmm. So they found uh, evidence of the Zygarnik effect that people who had been made to, to think about an upcoming task task and it wasn't something they'd finished yet. It did become an intrusive, repetitive thought for them. But they found that you didn't actually have to go complete the task in order to find it less intrusively occupying your thoughts, less likely to cause rumination and distraction. You just had to come up with a concrete plan, basically a to-do list of concrete steps about how you would solve the problem. Uh, so to quote from their abstract, quote, allowing participants to formulate specific plans for their unfulfilled goals eliminated the various activation and interference effects. Reduction of the effects was mediated by the earnestness of participants' plans, those who ultimately executed their plans were those who also exhibited no more intrusions. So the, it's not just that the people who made the concrete steps uh, did better with eliminating the, Zyg the Zygarnik effect intrusions. Also, the ones who actually ended up being successful in their plans, that was correlated with it. Hmm. Uh, so it's like – it's almost like your brain can tell whether you're taking your own plan seriously. And uh, to quote more uh, from their abstract quote, committing to a specific plan for a goal may therefore not only facilitate attainment of the goal, but may also free cognitive resources for other pursuits. Once a plan is made, the drive to attain a goal is suspended, allowing goal-related cognitive activity to cease and is resumed at the specified later time. Well, this makes a lot of sense, uh, certainly ex when, when compared to, to experience, because I can think of definite times in my life where there's been like some big thing I've got to start. Mm -hmm. And just by starting it, yeah. Just by, say, for instance, looking at the list of things to do yeah. uh, and then calling it a day, you know, which ultimately doesn't really – it doesn't really get that much done on the task. But you began the process and just by doing that, you know, you, you, you can feel better. You can feel like you have more control of the situation. Oh, well, thinking about or, or, or making a list of things to do, I would say that is really getting something done. That's maybe the most important part of what you've got oh, to get yeah, done. Oh, yeah, yeah. But but in another way, you didn't actually do anything. It's kind yeah. of like cleaning cleaning the room. An essential step is formulating a game plan and deciding what you're going to tackle first, so that you can act. Yes, but you haven't actually cleaned anything yet. Yes, but uh, but it's it's a crucial part. And in fact, it's good enough to not only help make you more likely to get the project done in the end, mm -hmm. but also to make you worry less about it until you get there. Yes, it's a twofold benefit: more actual success goals and less rumination in the meantime. And I think this also makes sense from a sort of a, a imagining like a cognitive neuroscience point of view because if you think about it, so like the Zygarnik effect is sometimes interpreted as like uh, 
the unconscious mind sort of pinging the conscious mind with like an outstanding problem. It's like, mm -hmm. hey, remember this? You need to get on that. Hey, remember this? And But what it really is asking for is the help of the conscious mind. And the conscious mind, we tend to think, is linked to the part of the mind that has executive control. Executive control is good for what? planning, mm. like the conscious mind is good at coming up with a list of steps of things you need to do to solve a problem, something that the unconscious mind is not very good at. Ah, and this is where executive time comes in, right? The, the <laughs> amount of time we spend each day in executive time. No, that's the exact opposite. That's like pure id time. Yeah. <laughs> So you rope in the conscious mind for, for executive action. Yeah. But I think it, it appears that across this stuff, like uh, that, that very specific concrete plans are more useful and more psychologically satisfying. Uh, so w one of the things that, you know, uh, productivity experts often observe is that Say like if you're trying to like, uh, you know, fix some stuff around your house, don't have a step in the plan that's like fix the shower. Mm -hmm. The step in your plan should be the very specific first concrete step you need to do to fix the shower. Like go to Lowe's and buy this part that I need and right. have the name of the part. Or, you know, and if, you, if you're not at that stage yet, the, the thing should be find out what part I need on the shower by going to – by looking it up on the internet. Right. I do think that's a, a useful insight. Like if you're finding – if you've got a to-do list but you're stuck and you're not getting through it, probably one way that you can get unstuck is – take the items in the list and try to break them up into smaller parts, figure out how they can be subdivided. All right. On that note, we're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, more on lists and why we love them. All right, we're back. So clearly, as we mentioned earlier on, lists are huge in web content, right? We know the power of lists. Uh, this is something that web traffic analysis clearly shows. Enumerated list-type articles have an extremely powerful appeal. They're clicky. Why? Well, like I said earlier, I think a lot of it is ease of absorption and or action. Mm -hmm. So it's like 10 images or names. Uh, you know, you, you probably don't even have to read the rest of the text. You can just scan it. But then also like 10 steps being a big thing. Like 10 steps, that sounds doable. I can do 10 steps. Yeah. What, you know, what, what's the, the offering? Is it 10 steps to a better life? 10 steps to uh, a cleaner house? Uh -huh. uh, 10 steps to a better marriage? I mean, these are all, uh, you put it, phrase it like that. I'm like, well, let's, let's try it. Well, I mean, yeah, 10 steps I think are very popular. They're popular maybe for a different reason than a lot of other kinds of enumerated articles are useful because the steps thing is like a to-do list. It mm -hmm. says this is not an infinitely complex impossible problem. This is a problem with 10 parts and you can do one part at a time. It makes it seem like, oh, yeah, I could actually begin this. Right, and like that alone can be empowering even if you have no intention of, uh, of following any of these, just knowing, even just not even reading the list, just knowing that that process could be broken down into 10 steps can feel kind of liberating. Yeah, so uh, nine rings for men doomed to die. Okay, so that's yeah. one step, or maybe that's the third step. I don't remember what order they come in, but... Elven kings are first, Joe. Got to okay. take care I'm of the sorry. elves first. The elves are picky. If you don't take care of them first, they ask to see mm -hmm. your manager. But but uh, to come back to the scannable nature of lists, I think that's big too. Because, that's really important, yeah. Yeah, because there, there have been recent studies. In fact, there was the most recent one uh, just came out in the last few weeks, I think, uh, looking at how we easily overestimate our understanding of a topic based on, say, a headline of an article or an article preview in Facebook. Um, 
Well, yeah. I mean, there's like uh, you remember the the illusion of explanatory depth mm-hmm. episodes, where that's uh, somewhat different, but it's that you know there can be a thing that we're familiar with because we are exposed to the concept of it a lot, and it gives us the false impression that we understand how it works. Like right. you know, you're you're around bicycles all the time, so surely you can draw one with all the parts accurately placed, right? Mm-hmm. Or can you? <laughs> It seems so simple, but it turns out a lot of people can't. And it's just like, yeah, you see them enough that you just think, well, I must understand this. And I think the same is true for more abstract conceptual topics like, you know, issues in politics. You think you understand how it works because you've seen the name referenced in headlines. Right, or you've, or maybe you've seen something broken down on a list of talking points, et cetera. Uh, now, speaking of social media, it's also worth pointing out that something like your Facebook or your Twitter feed is – it's not enumerated, but is essentially a list. It yeah. Is, it is is also not a, a finite list because they're designed to be infinite. Infinitely scrollable, yeah. yeah. Uh, but but these are lists. Uh, many times a day, we're probably checking in to see what the list is offering us this time. Well, I think that also goes to the fact that lists are appealing, listicle-type articles are appealing on the internet because they're easily scannable for content in the same way that your news feed is easily scannable for content. You know, like on Facebook, if you're just sitting there scrolling and letting Facebook ravage your brain, mm-hmm. you are not uh, – you're not – reading everything you're scrolling past, you know, you're just like scrolling until your eye hits something and you look at that for a second and you're like, oh, there's that. And then mm-hmm. you keep going. So I, I think maybe it's not always the numbered nature of a listicle that's important. Like in many cases, I think the numbers don't matter. Maybe what's important is that we know to expect a listicle to have headers, actually. Headers, very important, because they help you quickly identify the meat of the content. To know what the things on the list are, you don't really have to read the paragraphs if there are any. You right. can just, like, look at the headers and say, do I want to go deeper on this one? No, I can just scroll past. Right, and you know exactly, you know pretty much how long the article's going to be. It's like 10 items. That's it. Maybe there'll be some honorable mentions at the bottom. But for the most part, I have a general length in mind. Yeah. And so your relationship with a listicle type thing is usually pretty mercenary, right? It's less dedicated than a relationship you might have with other types of written texts. I think it's also appealing because a list promises discrete chunks of information that are desired for some understood reason, like they're either practically useful, useful like steps in a how-to, or um, practically useful because, like, say, ranked products, you know, the, these mm-hmm. are good versions of this product that you might want to remember and look for when you're shopping. Uh, or because they're interesting and you want to have bits of interesting information to remember, like the the 11 craziest Baphomet statues. Or there's something else that you feel compelled to know, like those best of lists that people sort of use to help form their taste. I was reading an article in The New Yorker by uh, Maria Konnikova, a science writer who oh, I yes. like. Mm-hmm. She, she wrote a good book called The Confidence Game. I, I enjoyed that one a lot. One of the things she mentions is the idea of that uh, that lists basically benefit from processing fluency. And we've talked about processing fluency on the show before, but processing fluency is a really underrated influence on our mental lives. Like we spend a lot of energy trying to spend less mental energy on things, like a lot of energy trying to optimize our information environments for processing fluency, which means – 
We're trying to make sure the information coming into our brain is not too challenging and it's easy to process. And there, there are a ton of ways you can look at the world around you and understand that we're trying to shape our environments to favor processing fluency by having these biases for processing fluency. Like remember the example of the, uh, the illusory truth effect? Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, we're more likely to what recall something if we've heard it before mm -hmm. and even more— Even if it's not true, even if it's a, an outright lie. Exactly. We've heard it before and therefore we, we echo it. Yeah, we're, so we're primed to understand it. It's easier to process because we've heard it before. And so there's scientific backing for the idea – for the notion that if you hear something often enough, you start to believe it's true. Uh, and one possible explanation for this is that it's caused by a bias favoring processing fluency. You hear something for the hundredth time, it's just way easier to process than when you hear something for the first time and it's new and unfamiliar. Another example I randomly came across is a study uh, by a Gryphonator et al., which is a, a great name in uh, social psychological and personality science in 2010. There was a series of studies that just revealed um, when people are grading handwritten essays, there's a strong bias in favor of the ones that are easy to read and against the ones that are that are more difficult to read. That might not be that surprising, but even people who don't think they're biased in fact are. You're biased by the fact that something that is easier to read and it's easier to take in just feels better to you. And so I think this is clearly work with like list type content because you uh, – number one, lists are pre-categorized, you know, like so mm -hmm. you don't have to wonder like what, what box am I going to put this in in my mind? Like you already know based on the title of the list what you're going to be getting out of it. You're not going to be categorically surprised. You've, you've already got a schemata going in for where to put everything. And then also there's just simple stuff like Konnikova points out that lists naturally lend, naturally lend themselves to spatial categorization. Hmm. Like there's vertical placement on a page and there's headers to denote placement of information. Um, they're in like large blocks of normal text aren't as clearly spatialized, but that we remember things better when it's spatially formatted in a way that's clear. Like think about the memory palace. Uh, you know, people can remember things better if what they like imagine a physical space. Yeah, using these uh, yeah, sp spatial um, uh, processing to understand something that may just be a list of numbers even. Yeah. Um, a, like a top 10 list is basically taking a concept and putting it in the format of a Mortal Kombat challenge tower, you know, <laughs> where you have a list uh -huh. of opponents and at the top you've got, uh, you know, you've got uh, uh, Shao Kahn or whoever. Mm. And that's the main boss. That's the number one ranking. Goes all the way down to the whoever the easiest person to beat is. So if you can take anything, be it, uh, you know, global uh, politics or environmental concerns, break it down into a Mortal Kombat challenge tower, and then just about anybody can, can at least get uh, like the, the surface level understanding of what you're trying to relate. That's a good point. I mean, a, another way of putting it is that like uh, lists tell you the – they explicitly tell you what's the important part of what you're reading. Mm -hmm. You know, like uh, this is a thing that's like difficult for younger readers often is like to like read a passage and then identify what's the – thesis sentence or the most important sentence in this paragraph or in this page. And like a lot of times it's it's harder for younger readers to do that, to figure out what's the point. A list, you don't have to wonder. It tells you here's the point. Mm -hmm. And that's another big thing about, uh, about lists and ranking is uh, we're often going to skip to the end. Like Pitchfork comes out with like top 100 albums of the year. 
I'm going to look at the top yeah. 10, maybe. You uh, know? They intentionally stagger the pagination to make that harder to do. Yeah, yeah. You have to like, of course, you have to click through a bunch of pages, right? Yeah. Uh, that's that's you, part of the game. You like can't click to the last page from the first page. You can only click to the like third to last page from the first page, and then you have to click down from there. Mm-hmm. It's nonsense. People, people get mad about that. <laughs> but anyway, bringing back to Umberto Eco, like I think there are some some clear – easy reasons to see why, like, you know, listicle-type content on the internet is highly popular. But what about the appeal of the list to somebody like Umberto Eco in, or in, in something like the Iliad? Uh, one of the things that Echo mentions is he just says that lists are sort of a suggestion of immortality because he says, you know, we have this discouraging limit on our lives. We know we're going to die mm-hmm. and that we like to assume that things go on without end. And so a list uh, – creating these big lists like the catalog of ships is kind of a way of escaping thoughts about death because we like to make – he says we make lists because we don't want to die. Interesting, Yeah. I mean, it comes back, you know, probably one of the, the, the most direct things we can think of is, is a bucket list or a, or a reading list, a viewing list. Uh, these are all the things we're going to accomplish in our lifetime. Yeah. Which, of course, I have to sadly admit that I still have a couple of Umberto Eco novels on my to-read to list. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, a couple that I haven't, haven't gotten around to just yet. Well, I've only read one now. Oh, well, yeah. There, uh, he has some other great ones. Uh, Foucault's Pendulum, uh, Island of the Day Before. Uh, Bottolino, those are the those are the ones I enjoyed the most. I've got to check that out. Name of the Rose was awesome. Yeah, it's uh, oh yeah, it's like a easily now a, a a top ten book for me. I think really really awesome. And uh, by the way, speaking of uh, Name of the Ro- Name of the Rose, uh, of course, it's set in the medieval period with like monks who are you know a lot of times dealing with these philosophical debates about the nature of things and dealing mm-hmm. with these encycl- medieval encyclopedias, which is just like the best things ever, you know, oh, the, yes. the bestiaries and all that. Um, and that one of the things Echo talks about in this interview is sort of the difference between understanding something by defining it versus understanding something by way of list. Uh, and that these are different ways of approaching knowledge and of seeing the world. When you define something, you try to like put into a sentence the essence of what the the concept or the thing is. Whereas the other way, I guess, is the more like inductive way of understanding a concept, which is making lists of examples of it or making lists of its characteristics. Mm. You know, uh, this reminds me of the the TV Tropes website that mm-hmm. uh, I enjoy using from time to time, especially especially if we have an episode coming out and there's like a concept in the show and I would like to acknowledge or remind myself of either you know, either sci-fi that I've, uh, I've read before or am familiar with or something I'm not familiar with that somehow ties into the concept. You can go to TV tropes and you can look at the various tropes on a given property. Um, so it, it, on one level, it, it's – it's uh, it's fulfilling, but on the other hand, it feels very uh, very much like a reduction of these things. You know, like let's just uh, atomize a, a film or a novel or a comic book down to familiar tropes that have appeared elsewhere. Well, on the other hand, I would say they kind of TV tropes that site kind of. Um... I don't know, validates or immortalizes strange cliches and conventions by showing you just how many examples of it there are. Right. When you thought you you see something in like one movie and you're like, that's kind of odd, but it feels bigger than that to me. It feels like a cliche. And sometimes you look it up on TV tropes and you find out, oh, yeah, this is in 30 things. You know, it's in a bunch of anime and right. stuff. Right. Yeah, but, but sometimes that thing that has appeared 30 other times, it's – 
it's so well executed or it's executed in a way that feels unique or it's a, or, or when other elements are creative, uh, sufficiently creative, that it, it doesn't feel like one of 30 things. It feels like the thing. Well, I think one of the great talents of a writer, especially comedy writers mm-hmm. more than anybody else, but uh, but one of the great talents of a writer who has a good sense of irony is the talent for picking out one example of a thing that communicates that thing well, whereas somebody else would have to write a complex definition or give a list of many examples. You know what I'm talking about? Like the 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 great talent for picking out the one example that perfectly encapsulates the spirit of something. Like if you were to say, and I'm not even sure exactly what this would mean, but if you were to say, so-and-so is the Highlander 2 of people. Exactly. Um, yes. Like yes. I, I'm not sure what I would, I'm saying if I were to pass that judgment on someone. Part of it would depend on uh, obvious aspects of that individual. Uh, but, it, but I'm still saying something that seems pretty specific. Uh-huh. I don't know if it works for H2, but it's uh, – but but yes, you're on the right track. That is what <laughs> okay. I mean. Now, another way of thinking about lists is just the nature of list making and list using as it's comparable to just how we use language, especially written language. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we go back uh, far enough in time, we get back to like the roots of uh, cuneiform uh, writing, which developed around the 8th millennium BCE. So this featured a system of of clay tokens to represent individual units of various commodities. So like one, uh, you know, sheep. One sheep would be one sheep token. Yeah, it was, it was that simple, and uh, th- these were pretty useful for keeping track of uh, of of, uh, of these uh, commodities. As we we're dealing now with, uh, you know, with with cultures that that had a surplus of things, and there there was trade uh, going on. Um, these tokens remained in use till around um, 3500 BC when more complex tokens came into play. And uh, you would have clay envelopes which were eventually developed to hold these tokens and then you would stamp those envelopes to indicate the contents. And this stamping would eventually lead to solid clay tablet writing and pictographic writing, logograms or word signs, and then sequential writing systems. But uh, written language in this emerges from counting technology, from the systems of making lists. Yeah, I've read this theory before. I uh, And this is really interesting, the idea that like the first written language emerged from trade and originally it was more pictographic but, event, but became more symbolic as time goes on and this led to phonetic alphabets. Right. Now, a, a great deal of what we do with written language is highly sequential. Even in the case of, say, nonlinear narratives and fiction, there is still is an order to what you're being presented with even if that order is, is altered. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, it's maybe not uh, chronological anymore but there is still – an order, like th- there is a sequence that you're presented with, and that sequence presumably means something. Mm-hmm. Whether you're presenting something in in reverse chronological order, or uh, you're skipping around in time, etc. And of course, we also ultimately experience, remember, and anticipate the universe as a series of sequential events. Yeah. So uh, th- this is one of those areas where it begins to sort of you know hurt the brain a little bit, but like. You know, is it, what comes first, right? Like, the, to what extent is the um, is this sequential experience, the linear existence of of life, is it dictated by 
our, our language uh, uh, writing, list-making nature, or is it the other way around? Well, that is a great question. I mean, the, the physics of time is no different for other animals, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they, their experience of time might be different than ours, but, like, it, it's not uh, the case that, like, uh, you know, chimpanzees live their lives out of order. They also right. experience an order of events. They might not perceive it like we do. Uh, but yeah, I, I do wonder about that with language. Are we like, are we Homo uh, albumus or whatever? The <laughs> list, the list making ape. Is that what we are? Well, I'll tell you this: uh, list making apes have uh, have achieved an awful lot uh, when it comes to making lists. And and one of the <laughs> One of the hallmarks of this that uh, I think we, we both found uh, kind of independently in our, our searching is that there is an actual Wikipedia article out there that is a list of lists of lists. It is so good. The intro to this page reads as follows. This is a list of articles that are lists of list articles on the English Wikipedia. <laughs> in other words, each of the articles linked here is an index up to multiple lists on a topic. Some of the linked articles are themselves lists of lists of lists. This article is also a list of lists. You know, it's not surprising that Wikipedia is where you would encounter a list of <laughs> lists of lists because Wikipedia is an example of encyclopedic thinking, which is an attempt, however feeble on our part, to impose order and understanding on a world, on a world where, you know, things do exist in relation to each other, but order is sort of, it's it's our attempt to, to master the chaos of reality, to say like, okay, here's how we can put things into categories. It's also sort of the project of Aristotle, right? I mean, Aristotle liked to divide things and put them in categories and make lists of lists of things. Mm-hmm. You could say that list making is in one way sort of uh, deep at the core of the scholastic impulse. It's, you know, when you're thinking about what it means to be a scholar, to study the world, it's to like put things in boxes where they conceptually go and organize the boxes. Or to wander out in the, into the garden and name all the animals, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, another funny thing, mentioning the garden is um, the authors of that book I was talking about earlier, they point out that uh, Genesis 1 is essentially a list. Oh, yes, on it's, the first day. It is yeah. a to-do list. It's just like, <laughs> look, ser- seriously, it, it is yeah. a divine to-do list. And then it gives way to like listing animals and stuff and says that the, the first task given to man when he was created is to name all the animals, which is to create a list. Make more lists. <laughs> Now I have somebody to make lists with me. That was the uh, the major accomplishment there. Well, that is until that somebody broke the only commandment on the list of thou shalt not at that oh, point. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, but oh, goodness, getting into rules and laws, though, that's a whole, that's a whole other area of list making uh, that we didn't really get into here. Just the, the, the essential nature of, of law. Like, and really, that's, that's part of this, the same process going on. Like, it's one thing to say, you there, subject— uh, do right or, you know, yeah. behave yourself. That's, that's one thing. But if you say, actually, here's a, here are 10 steps to not be executed by my high guard. Yeah. Here are 10 steps to not be cast outside the city gates and consumed by the jackals. And, uh, and then you're like, okay, I can probably do these things. Well, uh, it's a way of making uh, like virtue or righteousness you can divide it in the same way Echo does with he's like, okay, you can give a definition of something or you mm-hmm. can give a list of examples of it. You can do the same thing with like righteousness or the law. You could say – you give somebody a principle like do unto others as they would do unto you or something. Or you can give them just a long list of rules like don't do this, don't do that, do <laughs> this. Both are approaches humans have used. And I guess they both have their advantages, right? Because like the 
the the more like single principle based system feels more flexible and takes into account more of the you know the the diversity of human life and the different things you'll experience is less legalistic and intolerant and on the other hand the list of rules is less ambiguous you're le- like if you just follow a gigantic list of rules you're less likely to accidentally get into trouble right like well, you're more likely to give a list of commandments to say a robot yeah or or to or to robocop or whoever as a opposed to a principle, or at least you give them rules alongside the principle. All right, so there you have it, the world of lists. I would say <laughs> like, – Sorry, we just ended up like trying to list all the different ways that you can use a list or think about a list. I think that's what this turned into. This episode, by the way, one of the top 10 episodes we put out this month, I would, I would say. <laughs> Just to pat ourselves on the back. Um, obviously, this is going to be a topic that a lot of people have thoughts about. Uh, out there, you're going to have varying uh, degrees of success with with to-do lists. You're going to have uh, varying thoughts on top 10 lists, et cetera, just sort of the, the list-obsessed nature of our culture, and we would love to hear from you about it. As, what are your top 37 reactions to this episode? <laughs> yes, uh, list them, rank them, share them with us. In the meantime, if you want to check out more episodes of Stuff to Blow Your Mind, head on over to... StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's the mothership. That's where you'll find uh, all the podcast episodes. You'll find blog posts. You'll find some lists on there from back when we were doing more uh, text-based content. You'll also find links out to our various social media accounts. If you want to support the show, there are a few different things you can do. Uh, you can buy some merchandise. We have a T Public store with some cool logos and designs. Uh, but the best thing you can do is, first of all, spread the word. Let other people know about Stuff to Blow Your Mind. You know, post about us uh, in your online discussions. Mention us to uh, people on the street. Uh, likewise, you uh, need to subscribe to this show as well as Invention and rate and review us wherever you have the power to do so. Give us some stars. Give us a nice review. It helps out the almighty algorithms that uh, govern our world. Hey, have you not subscribed to Invention yet? Are you seriously not subscribed? If you're not... Go check out Inventions. Subscribe. It's our other podcast. It's about inventions. If you like this one, we're pretty sure you'll like that one too. Go subscribe. But anyway, big thanks to our excellent audio producers, Alex Williams and Tari Harrison. If you would like to get in touch with us directly with feedback about this episode or any other, with suggestions for the future, uh, or just to say hello, let us know how you found out about the show, where you listen from, what your top 10 list of lists of lists are. Uh, list, I think I screwed up the plural there. Anyway, you can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.